Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 25th of February. My name is Rosie McCabe and I'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This week, producer Hugo Goodridge will be exploring the Harak movement in Algeria, asking what triggered the peaceful protests for political reform and examining their legacy three years on. And what really changed in 2019 was that many people seemed to finally connect the dots and to recognise that the problems they were facing at the local level were connected by a systemic series of problems. And then the New Arab's editor, Ben Ashraf, joins us to discuss a new film, Bringing Assad to Justice. And they numbered the corpses, and they numbered the facility in which the individual was killed a day or two beforehand. 50 to 70 bodies a day he was taking photos of. But first, a quick look at the biggest headlines from the past week. Ukraine's capital is under siege as Russian forces move closer to Kyiv in the biggest attack on a European state since World War II. Early on February 24th, Putin announced an attack on Ukraine's Donbass region and called on the country's military to lay down its arms. Soon after, loud explosions could be heard in the capital and Ukraine's foreign minister said a full-scale invasion had taken place. 24 hours later, Russian forces reached the outskirts of Kyiv with explosions and gunfire reported in the northern district. The US and Ukrainian officials said Moscow aims to capture the capital and topple its government. An estimated 100,000 people have fled as major cities were attacked. Dozens have been reportedly killed. The invasion prompted a wave of sanctions as global leaders sought to ramp up pressure on the Kremlin. However, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has pleaded with the international community to do more, saying sanctions announced so far were not enough. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. Syria's White Helmets, otherwise known as the Syrian Civil Defense, affirmed their solidarity with the people of Ukraine this week. In a statement Tuesday, the group expressed fears that Russian weapons, quote, tested on Syrians, end quote, would be used on Ukrainians. Quote, unfortunately, those subjected to Russian aggression have not found much support from the international community in holding Russia to account. It is the best time for meaningful action to hold Putin and his oligarchs accountable, they said. The Iraqi parliament released a list of 33 presidential candidates after a long delay in the process over political tensions. 59 candidates applied for the presidency post, but 26 were excluded on the basis of not meeting the required conditions. Candidates still in the running include President Bahem Ahmed Saleh from the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan and Riba Ahmed from the Kurdistan Democratic Party. Uh, I have to say that uh, we are going to be a bit more circumspect uh, in terms of uh, uh, progress uh, that we may be seeing on the ground in Vienna, precisely because uh, we are in the final stages of what is, by any measure, a complex uh, negotiation with key stakeholders. 
Talks in Vienna, aiming to revive a 2015 nuclear deal between Iran and Western states, continued this week, reaching a, quote, sensitive and important point, end quote, according to Iran's foreign minister on Wednesday. The Iranian official said the West needed to adopt a, quote, realistic approach to go through the remaining points of the talks, end quote. A Russian envoy said Tuesday the negotiations were nearing their conclusion, and sources close to the talks said a prisoner swap between Iran and the US was expected soon. You must meet Hercule Poirot. My congratulations, madame. Merci. He's only the greatest detective alive. And finally, Jordanians have called for the new film Death on the Nile to be banned from cinemas in the country due to the inclusion of Israeli actress Gal Gadot. Cinema goers on social media have equated the screening of the film with the normalisation of Israeli occupation due to Gadot's past service in the military. The film has already been banned in Kuwait and Lebanon and Tunisia has withdrawn the Agatha Christie adaptation from its cinemas. For complete coverage and in-depth analysis of these stories and more, head over to the New Arab website. The protest movement will not stop. You must yield to the will of the people. If you want the movement to stop, there is only one way, and it is that you yield to this people. This will be peaceful until the end. It is the future of our children, and we will remain peaceful. It's been three years since the start of the popular uprisings in Algeria that came to be known as the Herak, an Arabic term that means movement. The Herak began on February 16th, six days after the then president of Algeria, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, announced his intention to run for a fifth term in office. In the years preceding, the 82-year-old ruler had been incapacitated by numerous health issues. Bouteflika was rarely seen in public, and when he was, he was a shadow of the strongman image that Algerians had come to know ever since his first term in 1999. His final public appearance was in 2017. For many Algerians, his announcement that he intended to run for a fifth term in office was an indignity too far. Millions took to the streets. They demanded an end to Bouteflika's rule and an end to the systematic corruption that had flourished during his time in power. The Algerian Herak cried out for a truly democratic Algeria. After months of protesting, the Hirak made their first major achievement. On April 2nd, President Abdelaziz Bouteflika made the announcement that he would not seek another term and resign. It was a triumphant victory for the men and women, young and old, who had persisted with their cause. Bouteflika's resignation was one huge step forwards, but in the years that followed, Algeria appears to have taken two steps back. This week, we'll explore what triggered the Herak, how its limitations stymied results, the response of Algeria's ruling elite, and what's the legacy of Algeria's Herak. In the 1990s, Algeria emerged from a violent civil war. In the decades afterwards, under President Bouteflika, saw rising living standards and a sort of post-war period of economic growth. This is Andrew Farrand, non-resident senior fellow for North Africa at the Atlantic Council 
and the author of the book The Algerian Dream, which covers the Algerian Herak and its origins. But at the same time, an increase in the perception of corruption at the top of the state among business leaders around Bouteflika and the army. And as a result, there was a growing sense in the country that there was deep inequality, uh, that the people at the top were taking too much for themselves. And this led to a general feeling of uh, what Algerians call hogra, or a sort of injustice mixed with condescension. Growing economic injustices were compounded with a baffling bureaucracy and security forces that would not hesitate to wield their power. By 2019, Algeria resembled a tinderbox of grievances, and Bouteflika's attempt to run for a fifth term was the flaming Molotov cocktail thrown on top. Many Algerians felt this was not worthy of such a great country. This is the the terms that it was described to me very often. And when Bouteflika's team announced on his behalf that he would be running for a fifth presidential term, this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And it led to this outpouring of frustration that had been building for many years. It's worth noting that while Algeria, prior to 2019, was firmly under the thumb of the president with invaluable support from the military, protests did occur. However, these protests were generally local and were focused on local issues. This was not the case in February 2019. And what really changed in 2019 was that many people seemed to finally connect the dots and to recognise that the problems they were facing at the local level were connected by a systemic series of problems. And that's when they went out and called for a systemic solution to those challenges. The Hirak was a broad-based movement, and that's quite unique. It was men and women and young and old from all different regions, quite united in this joyous and and forward-looking atmosphere that reclaimed a lot of the revolutionary symbols of the country. Uh, The revolutionary fighters who were still alive were out in the crowds singing patriotic songs and sort of taking this back from the government. In terms of its demographics, Algeria is a very young country. A 2019 report by the National Statistical Office stated that 7 in 10 Algerians were under the age of 40. When the Hirak erupted, it was the country's young who helped trigger and spearhead action. There was a new generation that did not live through the civil war, that did not witness the liberation war, and that wanted to establish and fight for a new democratic country as they aspired. This is Zain Labadine Gabouli, a political analyst and postgraduate scholar at the University of Glasgow covering political and security dynamics in Algeria. So the generational change in that sense was extremely important because it was the youth who went to the streets and then the other, the population joined them. The heavy presence of the youth in the Hirak marked a change in attitudes in Algeria. It signified a split between those who had lived through and experienced the horrors of the civil war in the 90s or even earlier uprisings and those who had grown up in a post-war Algeria. Andrew Farrand. They shared part of the trauma of that earlier age. They also were influenced by what they were seeing on satellite television, which reached Algeria in the 1990s, and on the internet, which reached it in the early 2000s. 
and which made young Algerians better able to access information, more aware of what was happening in the outside world. And as a result, led many of them to ask, why are people living in such a way elsewhere and we're not able to do that here? Why do they have such nice cars, such nice houses? Why are they able to say what they want in the street about their leaders and we're not able to do that here? So this comparative effect was particularly strong among the youth and I think an important motivating, motivating factor in their huge participation in these early protests. And we've seen that especially when there were protests conducted mainly by the youth uh, on Tuesdays, in addition to the, to the famous Friday protests. So I think the generational change was the first to go. Blocking Bouteflika from standing for a fifth term was the primary goal of the Hirak. It's what brought Algerians out onto the streets in such high numbers. And they were successful. The military support for their cause certainly played a part. But still, the Hirak scored a monumental victory. The Algerian protest movement, Algerian protesters probably did not expect that Bouteflika would uh, would resign. And I do not think that Bouteflika would have resigned without the pressure of the military institution. In that sense, it was a, a lovely and it was an optimistic surprise, a good news. But the Algerian protesters were not able to think about it the, the day after. After their initial victory, the Herak were the proverbial dog that managed to catch the car, unsure what to do next. The Herak is a great example of the difference between mobilization and organization in the social media era, because I think social media was central to getting people out into the streets and getting this collective call to mobilization. But that's very different from organizing and, and pushing for a concrete set of demands and entering into a negotiation with those who hold power. And that's really where the Hirak broke down. There was an incredible outpouring of frustration that did succeed in getting Bouteflika out because there was a coherent demand for that at the very start. But as soon as that happened, what followed was much more amorphous and the people in the streets had a lot of difficulty trying to find a coherent message and a coherent set of goals to rally around after Bouteflika's departure. And Zengabouli. Algerians were in the streets, uh, millions of people were in the streets, however, as individuals, not as an organized society, nor as an organized political force. In that sense, of course, streets do bring down systems. However, they do not build states and the lack of organization We've seen the spontaneity of the Algerian protest movement as one of its uh, strength, as one of its powers. However, at some point, this lack of organization, this spontaneity was one main reason of limiting the protest movement's capacity to replace the political system. By 2019, the Algerian Herak had watched protests take place in other countries, including Lebanon, Sudan and Hong Kong. And they had not just watched these protests, but also learned from them. One of the main ways that manifested itself is the Hirak's rejection of any would-be leaders. Anybody who stuck their head up or was seen to be trying to stick their head up above the crowds was pretty quickly cut down to size throughout those early months of protest. And I think this goes back to a central fact of the Hirak, which was that it was able to mobilize huge crowds, but never found an organizing structure to be able to negotiate with the powers that be. Uh, and that included not being able to designate leaders that had popular support to speak for the movement. 
cracks quickly appeared in the Hirak, and while the varied groups that made up the movement took stock and attempted to formulate a strategy, the Algerian authorities were putting into action their well-oiled machine. Because the protest movement represented a major political force at some point, there was a need from the Algerian authorities to control the scene, to control the streets. And that's where, where, where we saw many attempts to put an end to the Hirak through arrests, intermittent arrests, through propaganda campaign, through disinformation, through PR strategies. In that sense, the Algerian protest movement was victim of an asymmetric hybrid uh, counter-revolution that aimed essentially to decredibilize it, to delegitimize it, and to put an end to it. When Bouteflika announced that he would not seek a fifth term and resigned his position, elections were set for December 2019. And when they were held, turnout failed to reach 40%. Additionally, a constitutional referendum garnered a similarly low turnout. Boycotts of the elections were called for, with many viewing the exercise as a revolving door that would install the next Algerian political elite into office and ignore the demands for radical and systematic change. Indeed, the winner of the election, Abdul Majid Taboun, had served in a number of ministerial roles under President Bouteflika, as well as briefly serving as the Prime Minister of Algeria. Amid intense scepticism and rejection from the protesters, early in his term of office, Taboon did make some initial steps to reach out to the Hirak. I renew my engagement for the coming months, even the first few weeks, to carry out the demands of the popular movement. The constitution will allow the renewal of a single mandate of president and reduce the power of the President of the Republic. We have no choice but to go hand in hand to achieve the dream of our fathers, grandfathers, our youth of today and our future generations by building a new Republic, strong, majestic, independent and developed. Early in his presidency, Taboon announced that a number of the Hirak's members would be released from prison. But as for genuine reforms and engagements... The Algerian political establishment has no genuine willingness to engage in uh, fruitful and significant uh, reforms or what we call the radical changes demanded by the Algerian protesters in 2019. Instead, the Algerian system has been focused since 1962 on performing... uh, cosmetic reforms in order to just rectify or fix the, the small bugs within the, uh, within the facade of the Algerian establishment. However, the deep core of Algeria's system is the same and did not have any willingness or any intention to actually implement some radical, radical changes. With such an outpouring of desire for reform and change, Andrew believes that this failure to implement change could prove to be a costly error. One of the central questions that Algeria's history raises is, can a country survive if it doesn't adapt? And history shows that states that don't bend eventually break. And Algeria has broken before in the late 80s and early 90s. 
And if it wants to avoid that kind of social breakdown and violence, I think many people believe it needs to reform and not doing so is playing a very dangerous game. For the sake of balance, it's important to note the role that the military plays within Algerian society and the influence it has on Algerian politics. The radical reforms, as demanded by the Algerian people, need the approval and the consensus of the Algerian military establishment, of the Algerian military leadership. However, so far there is no consensus, and I think Tebboune was not honest with himself, was not honest with the Algerians when he promised very radical reforms, when he made some big promises without actually uh, being able to conduct them. Tabun did not meet the demands of the Herak, and subsequently the protests continued. But this time, the patience of the authorities was much shorter, and the arrest campaigns picked up pace. Authorities today are working off the same playbook they've worked off of for many years. The arrests ramped up uh, about a year ago. They were already quite high before the Hirak. Whenever anybody stuck their head up, they were high during the early months of the Hirak when the authorities were trying to find leaders to pull in to, to slow the movement down. And then a year ago, they increased again as the authorities did their best to stamp the movement out. The authorities were also dealt an easy hand with the emergence of the coronavirus pandemic. In December 2019, the marches after halted during COVID and the moment was an opportunity for the authorities to close down the public spaces even more. This is Sal Sabi Tunisia and Algeria researcher at Human Rights Watch. And around the second anniversary of the Herat in February 2021, the protests resumed but lasted only a few months due to the crackdown and the weakening of the movement. And actually, the authorities responded to the Herak during this period by deploying the security forces and taking advantage of the COVID pandemic and the weakening of the movement to tighten the screws on activism. The reforms by the protesters were not met, but the Algerian authorities did make some changes. Since the outset of the Herak protest movement, the penal code has been amended several times. For example, in 2020 to criminalise false news and many of the activists are facing charges related, for example, to dissemination of false information. And in in 2021, uh, the penal code was amended to expand the definition of terrorism. And lately, the authorities used terrorism charges to prosecute an increasing number of activists, journalists and human uh, rights defenders. And this is really a dangerous escalation uh, of the repression. The Algerian authorities have been depressingly effective at filling up their prison cells with between 280 and 340 Hirak activists and supporters arrested. Although the Algerian authorities aren't rushing to get those arrested into courtrooms. One of the main issues with the Hirak detainees is that most of them are detained and waiting for trials for a long time. For example, most of them are detained and waiting for trials uh, since months. And it feels like preventive detention has become the rule or that the authorities are also sometimes 
trying to gain time for them to, to build to build the case. The other concern is that the independence of the judiciary is not guaranteed either. And I think that uh, the example of a judge who was uh, last year facing a disciplinary action because of his pro-Hirak statement is, uh, was a good example of that. The closing down of public spaces, the suppression of free speech, arresting protesters and suppressing political opposition. For Salsavi and Human Rights Watch, it all points to a disheartening conclusion. I think there is no doubt that Algeria is lying down into authoritarianism because the authorities are actually denying basic freedom and rights to Algerian citizens. They're jailing hundreds of peaceful activists and banning the activities of association and political parties. And even if many organizations, Algerian organizations, international organizations are asking and calling for the, the release of the detainees or uh, the respect of uh, the international law, the, the authorities, the Algerian authorities are not responsive. Since the birth of the Hirak in 2019, Algeria has been on a roller coaster, which unfortunately has been heading down for a while now. But... According to Zine, while Algeria's pro-democracy movement is in a slump, they are looking up and to a new future. I do not believe that these repressive measures will forever restrain Algerians from dreaming of a better country. I think quite the opposite. I think the more the Algerian authorities resort to repressive measures, the more frustrated Algerians will be and the bigger the hope will be for a better future of Algeria because at the end of the day, this repressive campaign will lead to a frustration and will lead to an explosion. Sentiment shared by Andrew Farrand. I think what's important to note is that many Algerians today remain deeply dissatisfied with the current terms of the social contract, as it were. And despite the fact that there was a new constitution put in place, new elections, there's a new president who has declared a new Algeria, that fundamental tenets of that social contract have not changed. And so the frustration with it remains. So I think the Hirak's raison d'etre has not been resolved. Like I said, it's dormant, but I think we're likely to see that frustration express itself further in the future. New film Bringing Assad to Justice has been earning rapturous praise from critics and international film festivals. A stark look at Bashar al-Assad's crimes and the people seeking justice. Earlier this week, I spoke with one of the film's makers, Ronan Tynan, and asked him why he decided to make the film. We, we felt uh, compelled, really, to make this film after making Syria the Impossible Revolution because uh, we were left with a terrible feeling of literally millions of people who had who have been so profoundly wronged, who had been subjected to a string of repeated, not just war crimes, but crimes against humanity. Because, you know, it's a funny thing. I shouldn't say it's a funny thing, but it's a tragic thing. But if you're bombed once, that's a war crime. If you're a civilian or a group of civilians in your home, in your hospital, but when you're systematically bombed repeatedly, that's a crime against humanity. 
And that really is the story of Syria since 2011, when Assad effectively began a war against the people who dared to protest against him and any group or individuals deemed to be opposed to his rule. So as I say, because he turned Syria into a giant crime scene, and I saw these Syrians uh, seeking justice when the International Criminal Court was denied from them in innovative and courageous ways, we had no choice but to make this documentary. Joining me to discuss bringing Assad to justice is the New Arab's Deputy Editor of Features and friend of the podcast, Benjamin Ashraf. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Pleasure as always, Hugo. We went to see this film together. Uh, can you give us a quick rundown of what the film is about and what were your impressions? Sure thing, yeah. Um, so I think the film can be split into three strands. Um, the first is that it's predominantly a film about archives. And um, that is to document the, in rigorous detail the crimes of Assad through using written testimonies, forensics and architectural design. Now, this is ordered to prove the point that, as the film makes clear, this is a war crime that's masquerading as a war. Now, the second feature of the film is that it is throughout linked with advocacy um, and that there are regular contributions from NGOs, policy experts, human rights advocates and ambassadors that seek to urge the viewer to understand how the conflict at this present time is a flagrant violation of international law and norms. And whilst in any normal case, this would lead to a typically dejected tone, the point is made that Assad's own systematic recordings um, provides us an opportunity to hold him accountable um, and that the case against him is a ticking time bomb. And the final strand of the film in, in explaining what it's about is the human and the cultural strand. And I'd say that the film Bringing Assad to Justice is also a stunning example of fortitude and adversity. Throughout the film, we hear unimaginable experiences of torture, violence, neglect and abuse. And yet the human and its faculties stay firm. The film is proof that despite Assad's best efforts to destroy um, what makes an individual an individual, we are stronger than what he could ever imagine. Um, and these moments are shared throughout collective action and culture, with the latter a particularly compelling example of how the sp human spirit, despite assault, can remain immortal. I thought while there was plenty of legal technicalities uh, at its heart, it was a very human film. When I spoke to Ronan, he told me what message he was hoping the film would send. Well, first of all, I mean, when you say message, uh, first of all, we were really anxious to share the story of these amazing Syrians against the odds, trying to bring a brutal dictator to justice when the rest of the world had literally deserted them. We also wanted, in a sense, to illustrate the power of universal jurisdiction a method or a way by which countries interested could help people seeking justice when institutions like the International Criminal Court were denied to them, in this case by Russia and China vetoing the referral of Syria to the International Criminal Court. And most importantly, and this is really an important point, the problem in Syria is that Assad and his henchmen believe they can commit crimes against humanity with impunity. They can commit crimes without being made accountable. And what's remarkable about these efforts by Syrians is they're saying, no, you will be made accountable. And that's the message, if there is a message. And that fundamentally is the point. The power of universal jurisdiction and the efforts to make Assad know that there will be accountability. Ben, did, did that work for you? 
Sure, and I thought Ronan's um, commentary was particularly poignant because, as I've said it, the film is a powerful and at times uncomfortable account of a war that veers in and out of you know the public psyche. And I guess in that sense, the film is a harsh reminder why we must remain engaged and seek to bring Assad and his regime to justice and also to bring justice to the people of Syria. And that's a, an important point to make. So broadly, yes, I agree. Um, and, and I'd say that the film was polemic in the best possible sense, that in that it was interested in covering, you know, little known truths to enact change. And I think it was able to achieve that um, goal particularly successfully. I would, I would add a caveat in saying that the style and the content lends itself to those more generally aware of what is going on. Um, but as we found out at the um, premiere, not to the extent that the film details. So, so given that we were watching it around a like-minded audience, I'd be particularly intrigued as to how this you know, seemingly unequivocal evidence would, um, would encourage a, a, a broader audience to in- interact with Syria and Assad's crimes. Uh, ben, we're both journalists covering the Middle East, and I'm sure you, like me, have seen plenty of footage of the conflict in Syria, uh, much of it very brutal. Uh, but I would have to say that... Even I found parts of this film uh, incredibly difficult to watch. Um, what did you make of the very brutal nature of some of the footage? Sure, sure, Hugo, I agree. And um, I guess what you're referring to in context is the addition of a military photographer codenamed Caesar, who um, collated photos and um, and documents that prove the heinous crimes and methods and killings and torture um, that the Assad regime killed. Um, Just for a little bit of context, between 2011 and 2013, Caesar and what then became his group um, collated 55,000 photos of what is believed to be 11,000 victims in the limited security um, conditions that he was working in. And so we saw in graphic detail, as you said, the, you know, how unhuman people can be when committing something in the name of quote-unquote nationalism or, or an idea as to keep Assad in power. But, uh, but I'd also add a, a point in saying that, you know, some of the, the film's most engrossing content was actually the architectural reconstruction and the reenactments of the prison conditions that were made by forensic architecture. Um, and sure, it was graphic, but in, in the sense that in a more profound way in that it allowed the, the viewer's imagination to wander to its darkest depths. And so I'd say a combination of those two, of, of seeing the graphic realities that have been provided by Caesar and also the abstract architectural um, and, and you know, animated um, designs of the film um, was, is, is perhaps the film's most pressing point. Um, and that it allowed the viewers to engage with such horrors, um, and perhaps also, if we're to be frank, to uh, look at, look within ourselves, our own tacit complicity, um, kind of like Clockwork Orange, where the eyeballs are, are glued to the screen, so to speak. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. When I spoke to Ronan, I did ask him about his decision to include this footage. Our only concern in selecting that footage was to show respect to the victims of these horrible crimes. That was our primary concern. Obviously, we also were concerned that in making this film, we wanted as many people as possible to see it. 
we also did not want to make it in such a way that good people would be forced to turn away. At the same time, of course, the horror perpetrated by the regime meant that we had to go some way uh, to give people some kind of context of the nature of that horror and the horrific effect it has and has, has had and is continuing to have on Syrians. So you're talking about very difficult decisions. Uh, ben, there were moments of light in this film, particularly at the end when we visited a theatrical group in France. What did you make of this rather hopeful ending? Yeah, and I think given what we've just been discussing about some of the more graphic elements of the film, I think, um, you know, the activists and those that were tortured in those conditions and then working with theatre directors to, I guess, to immortalise their um, their experiences and, and, and proof of the spirit, Syrian spirit. I'd say that this was kind of a conscious um, aesthetic dislocation from their experiences and, and it allowed them to politically engage in a new way um, and to turn themselves into social actors. Um, and so in doing so, you know, what were previously marginalised voices within Syria, um, at least on the, in the public sphere, um, through art, um, we see we see um, activists and, and those that have been tortured playing the oud, um, and through music and theatre, they're able to assert their Syrian identity. And I, and I think this was a powerful ending. It created an alternative possibility of um, aesthetic political resistance that is that is rooted in anti-authoritarian struggle. And I think that was, as you say, a very hopeful ending to what was, um, in in any other case, quite a, a dark film. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Cheers, Hugo. Thanks for having me. If you want to see Bringing Assad to Justice for yourself, you can head over to bringingassadtojustice.com where it is available to rent or buy. If you want to hear more about the efforts being made to bring the Assad regime to justice, you can listen to our last episode. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by Hugo Goodrich and me, Rosie McCabe, with additional help from Benjamin Ashraf, Safa Amar, and Nick McAlpin. Our theme music was by Omar Afil. The New Era Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Era Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.